0: Exploring the natural world one podcast episode at a time, this is For What It's Earth. Hi all and thank you for joining me for another episode of For What It's Earth by me, Marissa of the Art of Ecology. Here, nature enthusiasts, animal lovers, and eco-warriors can discover and explore so many facets of the environment that we all love, as well as some creative ways to make a positive difference for the planet. This week, I am joined by one of my college friends, Jess, who I met as a kind of self-proclaimed swamp monster, and naturally, we just hit it off. So Jess, can you introduce yourself and some of your background with wetlands, and I know now you do a lot with wetland birds as well. Glad to be here. Um, so again, my name is Jess Schmidt.
1: Uh, I went to school with Marissa um, at Delaware Valley University, I guess now. Um, so my background was in wildlife conservation. Um, worked a lot in wildlife rehab uh, for a number of years. Um, and then I kind of accidentally got into working with wetlands. I was looking for something different, looking for a way to still be involved with wildlife and, um, and make like a positive impact and just kind of figure out uh, where I was going. So I uh, applied to, for a volunteer job working in the Florida Everglades. And that was my first Ooh. wetlands field job. And I loved it. Um, <laughs> and it was just like the ecosystem, just all the birds down there. It was so uh, novel to me, but I knew that I wanted to travel and continue to work in wetlands ecosystems. Um, and so I just was like, hey, let's see where this goes. So I've worked in now uh, Illinois. I spent two years there. I've been to California working uh, for fish and wildlife out there. I spent two years in Ohio uh, working as a wetlands researcher, and then um, this past summer um, working in Delaware with another secretive marsh bird, and now I am currently in Arkansas um, working on my master's degree. Like, yeah, so fell into it accidentally. (laughs) Long and short is I stumbled upon it, um, but now I'm very excited to to know that this is like, you know, what I'm going to do with my life. So I'm, I'm really excited about that.
0: That's awesome. I did not know that your first kind of foray into the wetland stuff was in the Everglades. So with the, you know, your Instagram handle of being Swamp Monster Jess and things like that, how, I'm guessing in the Florida Everglades, but how did you find when you were there that you were like, This is what I'm gonna do.
1: I'd like to give a shout out to my younger brother for coming up with my Instagram handle. Um,
0: Nice. But, um, so I guess the
1: biggest thing for me was initially, like, like I said, like it was just a very new and exciting ecosystem to work in. Um, So at first that's like what kept me interested, but there's, I don't want to say these stigmas about wetlands. I think it's a really misunderstood ecosystem. I think, um, and probably more historically than now, I think now people are starting to realize how important they are and like appreciate them.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Um, But they just, they seemed like, you know, they're like how like they're the underdog. Um, But they're a pretty harsh ecosystem. You know, you have to deal with floods and heat and bugs and not just, you know, as a researcher being out in them, like as a wild critter being out there, um, it's, it can be very intense. And at the same time, There's just, like, despite all the hustle and the bustle and the fact that it's teeming with life, that it's a very peaceful ecosystem. Like, it can be very quiet and, Mm -hmm. like, there's nothing like the feeling of, you know, waking up early and, you know, seeing a sunrise over the marsh. Like, that's just, to me, is unbeatable. Um, So, I think it's, like, a really tranquil, like, despite being so, like, wild and, like, untamed, I guess, um in some places and especially the Everglades and at the same time being so peaceful it's you know it's an enigma it's um I think it's really beautiful.
0: When I used to work at the nature center I was the only one of the employees whose favorite spot was the marsh. I loved the mud and the muck and the plant life there was a lot It was just so different. I guess the best way to kind of describe it was the plant life seemed very aggressive, yet so simple. Whereas a lot of the other employees really liked this spot. It was like a bridge crossing by the stream and there were these trees and it was like a fairy tale, very like the whimsical thing. Mm -hmm. And I was much more of that. Give me the muck and the mire. (laughs) This is too whimsical. And the plant life in the marsh was a lot, like, spikier. It's just less of a whimsy and more of, like, a b- guy in your face. It's
1: it's very in your face.
0: But I it's also, like it. you said, very tranquil. Like, mm-hmm. you could go there and just kind of sit in your muddy little patch of mm-hmm. all these little grasses and just breathe. So I, I, I got it. I got it. But you're mentioning, you know, all this life that you found there and that you've been working with birds and the waterfowl and the rails, things like that. You're As you're studying all of these birds, because I know you're studying the birds more than the habitat itself. Mm-hmm. Um, what sort of data are you collecting about these birds? Like, what are you hoping as you kidnap a bird from its habitat? Like, what are you looking for to learn about?
1: <laughs> as I kidnap them. Um, <laughs> I know that's not what you do, but <laughs> it is. I also do that. Um, so I am also the way that I've described myself is an avian cryptozoologist because Ooh. the birds, the birds that I study are basically Sasquatch. Um, so my project is working with king rails, um, who are considered vulnerable in Arkansas, um, where I'm doing my field work, and then they're considered endangered in I think 12 different states um, in the United States. So they're uh, like a freshwater bird; they do get into some brackish water. Um, so their habitat has been threatened. They, they've been in decline and have been for decades. Okay, so my field site is in the Arkansas Delta, which is part of, uh, the Mississippi Flyway. Um, there's, you know, four major flyways for waterfowl, but, and the Mississippi Flyway is most renowned because about 40 percent of the nation's waterfowl go through the Mississippi Flyway. Um, it's an incredibly important hotspot. Um, but I would like to add not just for waterfowl, like, it is a a mecca, basically, for um, like shorebirds and and rattles. Um I've been seeing a lot of American bitterns, um, which is really exciting for me. Um, songbirds, like everybody's moving through that area. So it's just, it's a hot spot for all different kinds of birds, and they use it as they're migrating. Um, so my project is looking at this area where I'm at. Um, it is the only recorded uh, location for breeding rails in Arkansas. So it is, like, ah, um, so I'm trying to figure out what it is about this area that is, you know, drawing these rails in. Um, and then as we're capturing birds, kidnapping them, um, <laughs> we're, we're collecting data, and, um, the biggest thing that I'm focusing on is migration connectivity. So where these birds are going, um, where, like, from here, like, do they stay here? Do they go west, like, towards Louisiana? Do they go east towards Florida? Do they go up to the Great Lakes? They, they breed up there, and that's, like, where I've previously worked with them. So they have a number of directions that they could go, um, but we're really interested in this population because, you know, they're the only breeding population here in Arkansas. Um, and discovering, um, are they coming back the next year? So migratory connectivity, figuring out where they're going, are they coming back, um, and then birds that are born here, so, like, the juveniles at the end of the summer will capture them and put, um, transmitters on them and see, like, do they come back to the place that they were mm-hmm. born or do they go elsewhere? They're like, you know what, Arkansas is not for me, and they get out. Um, so we are, they're GPS transmitters, um, and it just, like, it's like a little backpack and we put it on them, um. And then we ship them off and you're like, okay, go do your bird stuff. And um, so at each different points of the year, so like we just captured nine birds, um, four of them got fitted with transmitters. Um, So these birds were considering migrants, like they're gonna move on through. Mm -hmm. Um, And then once we start getting into breeding season, we're gonna be looking for nests and then putting out four more transmitters. And then in the summer, like I said, we'll put four tags out on juveniles. So just like get the whole life cycle picture And the tags will hopefully last a year. And then, you know, we'll see in a year if they come back or, you know, where they're going. Um, Which is nice because I just, like, downloaded some data today. And some of the birds are still hanging out here. um, But I am in my pajamas currently. So I was able to get that data without having to, like, chase them through the Mm market. Brooke Meanly did a lot of rail work in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. And he's, like, really well known for that um and so he did uh some studies on king rails in arkansas um but at the time they were like nesting in rice um oh. so you know now like recent research is like okay like what habitat are they using now like what are the specifics of of that habitat um and so i'm building on that to be like okay this is what they need when they're nesting right and this is why they come to this specific area so it is interesting to I mean, like, you know, science is numbers and quantifying that, but like to be able to analyze it, it's like, okay, like you're taking these points and it's not just like, oh, these plants and it has water. It's okay. How deep is the water? Does it matter? Is it very specific? Um, So yeah, so there is some of that focus, but it is, it's exciting, you know, to like be able to like paint the picture of of what they need. um, Instead of just being like, oh, there's water and grass. It's like, okay, like, you know, exactly how much and and does it really matter? Um, Right.
0: So I know that you kind of recently started this project, but have you found anything even mildly conclusive of like, oh, yes, it does matter, and maybe we don't know why yet, but it does, or just any sort of direction that your research is taking you?
1: So it matters at certain points in the life cycle. And it's not just like, oh, it has to be eight centimeters deep and the veg has to be this tall at this point. Um, and then it's, and this specific plant. So like looking at another projects I've worked on and, um, other papers like done in Arkansas and the Southeast, I guess in the South, I don't know, um, regionally, um, the vegetation itself doesn't really matter, whether it's cattail or phragmites Mm -hmm. or rushes, like it's really what's available. Um, but the biggest takeaway that I'm noticing, like the pattern is that. Like I said, it matters at different points of the year. So when they're establishing a territory like they were now and, you know, into the coming weeks, um, you know, they want to have, like, dense, dense cover. Like, they're little, they're, you know, super, um, so fun fact about rails, when they say skinny as a rail, they mean, like, the bird and not, like, a pole.
0: Oh, okay. Cool, Um, cool.
1: So they're, they're, like, tall-ish. So, like, these birds are, like, eight eight inches tall, but they're real skinny. Like they just like like dart through like little right. Like they, you know, they just cut through the veg. So like it's very easy for them to navigate through. So the denser the vegetation, it's easier for them to fit through and more difficult for predators. So like at that point right. of the year, they want really dense veg. Um later when they're starting to build their nest, it's like, okay, it needs to be this tall around so that they can manipulate it to make their nests. Um, I would highly recommend looking up rail nests, um, they have, like, it looks like, best describing, I could say, is, like, hot air balloon, there's, like, a woven basket, and then they've got, uh, like, the veg up around it, um, that kind of, like, like, goes to the top, and then they manipulate the top, so it just, like, makes, like, a canopy over it. That's so cool! It's really cool, and then they also do a ramp, which, (laughs) it's, it's so cool, like, they're so fancy, um, So like at that, yeah, like when they're nest building and, you know, they want a really tall veg. Um, And then once they, those eggs have hatched, they want to have a territory that's close by, that's got some shorter vegetation for the chicks um, Mm -hmm. and a little bit of water, not too much. Um, And some of the biologists here have noticed that where they see chicks, like after they've hatched, um, where plants have fallen over, like the chicks will run across it. So it just makes like a little so they can like start to get their feet wet, but it's not too oh, deep
0: Oh, that's um, cool. Kind of like a boardwalk. Yeah, exactly.
1: And they're just like, um, which I love, I love real chicks, I'm so excited. Uh, but yeah, so like at different points in their life cycle, like they need different habitats. So right. like, you know, when people talk about like protecting wetlands, it's like, okay, like you also have to like think about like the whole cycle and not just like, hey right. okay, there's water on the ground. This is good. Like it's gotta be able to be suitable you know, at different times and, you know, whether land managers have to manipulate it or whatever, you know, the synopsis is from this project, you know, what management techniques are they doing here? Um, I hope that they would like to build on it and, um, you know, do more research and do a comparison. There's definitely a need for it. Um, so I hope that they continue
0: to do it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I do want to ask this just because, you're doing your, your graduate program and you're studying the rails and you keep mentioning the rails. Are rails your favorite bird or is there, is there another one that has stolen your heart? <laughs> so you sent me this
1: and I got to tell you, this was my hardest question. So I, in case the rails are listening, they're my favorite. <laughs> um, <laughs> they're just so sneaky. Um, I, I, feel very much like when I'm around them like they're watching you like you know they're there mm-hmm. um it's very Jurassic Park-esque um <laughs> so I don't, man then no this is tough because I yeah I would say rails are my favorite but no because I'm gonna be like well this guy's my favorite um I've been
0: I mean you're allowed to love multiple birds
1: I, and I do, and I'm gonna like go through all my list and be like, oh, but I love these guys. Like I love spoonbills, like the roseate spoonbills. They're just so goofy. Ooh,
0: yeah.
1: Um. I guess my kind of trend is like whatever I'm like learning about or focused on at the moment. So like my favorite bird of the week for me to um has been American bitterns, um because they're apparently super secretive, except I've seen and heard so many here. Um, cause they're migrating through and I don't know what migration okay. does to them. It makes them all wonky that they're like just chilling out in the open and like doing their thing. I'm like, I can see you. Um, yes. <laughs> so it's, I, I just think they're, they're so sneaky. Um, oh, okay. So my favorite like songbird that's in the marsh are the marsh wrens. Um, they're just so tiny and sassy. I guess, Aww. yeah, for me, sassier, the better. Like that is ideal bird is just sassy. Um, that's awesome
0: you know nothing wrong with having a list it's all good whenever people ask me what my favorite animal is like just in general I'm like you gotta you gotta be more specific than that there's just there's a lot out there
1: yeah and yeah, yeah. And like the more you know you're like oh my god this this one's so cool. yeah and, oh
0: this one's really cool and right
1: um yeah for sure it's hard it's hard it, they're like potato chips you can't have just one <laughs>
0: Nice. I do like that um, analogy. It is the perfect analogy. I know. I like potato chips and birds. I'm a very simple person. (laughs) It's the little things in life, right? Kind of going back to what you had mentioned briefly um, about the conservation of wetlands. I know here Mm -hmm. in Pennsylvania, wetlands are drying up like it's nobody's business. And so there's this huge push. I see every nature center, every environmental organization, there is like, save the wetlands, save the wetlands, uh, which I think is a really great thing to do because Absolutely. they do need protection. Cause I know how much biodiversity is found there and how much of just our life too revolves around wetlands. And during earth month, which is April, when we're recording this, it gets pushed even more of like, mm-hmm. wetlands, yay. But then you mentioned that you have to look a little bit deeper at conservation techniques. Can you just kind of explain what you mean a little bit more? I, you, you touched on it briefly, but I think it's really interesting.
1: So I guess in the way that I'm going to explain it is that, I mean, they are like drying up, but I think it's more in the sense that they're being drained um, and degradated. So like they mm-hmm. are, you know, they're technically you know, drying up. Um, and their biggest, um, threats are, you know, being drained for agriculture use, uh, for development. Um, and then not only like, so so it's bad enough that it's like, you know, these beautiful habitats are being drained for agriculture. And then to top it off is that like the remaining wetlands, like, you know, pollution runoff is, you know, Mm -hmm. going into the waterways and then, you know, getting into the remaining wetlands. So there's like you know, all sorts of, what's the I'm trying to remember eighth grade science, points source, or point source solution and not mm-hmm. points or solution. So things, you know, are winding up there that aren't supposed to be, um, plastics, you know, garbage winds up in there. Um, so yeah, so they're being like halved every day and it's pretty, uh, depressing is one word that comes yeah. to mind. So it's important to protect the ones that we do have, like just having water and cattails and, uh, you know, a couple trees or whatever. Right isn't, you know, and calling it a wetland doesn't mean that it's gonna have the same uh, benefits that like the existing wetland was. Like it's really hard to naturally recreate. Um, So you find that in like these large areas, they have like wildlife management areas um, or preserves, like people, you know, biologists and land Mm -hmm. managers have to manually control the flood of water. So they're, you know, they're not really, like they can in some areas like mimic natural cycles, um, with rainfall and snowfall events, um, but really, like, you know, human beings are, are controlling that cycle.
0: Right. Um,
1: um, and to no fault of their own, wetlands have, uh, incredible soil. It's great for all those wetland plants and all the plants in the seed bank, but unfortunately, (laughs) that means that it's also great for agriculture. Right. Um, You know, so they can, you know, use these soils, and it's, you know, an alternative, um, to, I guess, you know, and grasslands as well, but, you know, wetlands, um, you know, they're just, I think, and historically, and, you know, like you're saying now with people being like, like realizing how important they are, uh, a lot of people historically looked at them as waste of space. It was like right. just wet and muck, and we don't need that, and we can, you know, grow something profitable here instead. Um, and I think, like, people don't realize is because they think they're waste of space, um, and they're not. Um, And unfortunately, until we get to the point where people are like, okay, I want to protect it because I love and understand Mm -hmm. these ecosystems, people look at it as like, I need to understand the economic value and benefit of these ecosystems. So it's like, okay, like I have to quantify all these things. Um, So not only is it important for as habitat for wildlife um, and fish, um, it's, you know, nature, tourism, um, Mm you know, getting to go out and explore these areas. So like kayaking, hiking around wetlands, um people who want to go fishing like recreationally hang out in there. So nutrient regulation, so what uh, wetland cycling, like they recycle these nutrients. So like even though pollutants are ending up in the wetland, like they're, you know, wetlands are breaking them down. Um, um they help control soil and sediment regulation. Uh, so there's water purification, um, Flood control is, like, another big one that people don't think about. It's, like, you know, all these mm-hmm. levees and, like, levees are getting blown out. And it's, like, well, right. if you have a wetland in it. Um, so, like, the living coastlines, like, really help with, um, like, flood damage. And, like, especially with, you know, the increased number of uh, storm events that we're experiencing. Um, like, the living coastlines are huge. Like, when there is a flooding event and they, you know, go into the wetland, they're recharging groundwater. So, um, you know, there's water f- for you know, not just wildlife, but like, you know, nearby uh, human communities. Um, And then food production, like, you know, another thing that people don't think about. Um, I went to a conference a few years ago, and they talk about ecosystem services. And like, aside from, like, the money generated for people visiting these areas, and um, the money spent to protect and enjoy these places, is the amount of money that it saves. So like, if people... You know, it's like millions of dollars in right. having, like, flood control. Like, oh, I don't have to pay the insurance for this because we have this wetland. But, you know, eight years down the road and we have a huge hurricane, like, we're not going to have to, you know, deal with some of this yeah. stuff. Like, the effects are going to be, you know, reduced. But most of the time, people don't think about that. So it's just
0: like, why? <laughs> right. How much preventative care they provide. That's so. definitely one of the things that, as an environmental educator, I really strive for is making every topic as relatable to daily life as possible because you don't know what you don't know. So going around and educating people, if, if I can't connect it to why this should be important to them, it's just some cool trivia for yeah. them, but I want this to be so much more because there is so much more behind it and mm-hmm. why this is all important.
1: Oh yeah, no, absolutely. Um, which is why I, this is, you know, this is such a great idea to like be able to reach out to people and and share that information. Cause like you said, like yeah. there's so many people that just don't know, you know, like we were really lucky to study this or, you know, yeah. grow up in an area that like pushed conservation. Um, so it's been like all consuming, I don't say all consuming, uh, <laughs> like present in our lives, but yeah. for some folks, like it's just not. Um so, but yeah, no, it absolutely impacts people every day, which is why, like, more people should be concerned that we're losing wetlands, yeah, um, you know, at the rate that we are, um,
0: yeah, so what, going with that, with how important it is, what sort of, and not just wetland, but there's so much wildlife that lives there, and your focus is on the birds there, but, what sort of conservation methods are already in place or conservation efforts or just ways that these habitats aren't just gonna get destroyed and these animals aren't gonna be displaced? Like what's going on with that?
1: Um, so a big one is the North American Waterfowl Management Plan. Um, so that is a coalition of biologists and researchers in Mexico, Canada, and the United States, like the whole, whole shebang. Right. Um, Of North America, and there's you know there's a lot of research that's going into okay like what do these animals need Um, specifically waterfowl and they're kind of treated as an umbrella species in like okay like we're protecting habitat for ducks um, and it's suitable for ducks and then you know branching out from that like oh there's lots of you know rails like rails benefit a lot from waterfowl management, um, you know, and people do, like, turtle surveys and right. frog surveys. So, like, seeing all the things that can benefit from, um, these conservation, uh, these research projects, as, like, as it pertains to waterfowl initially, but, like, you know, you can build on that. Um, so they do a lot, and they fund a lot of research, and they have a lot of plans, um, I think every 10 years, every five years. Um, and they just, like, moving forward with, like, current research, it's like, okay, like, we've discovered these things, this is how we're gonna, um, you know, move forward, um, to continue to preserve these areas or, like, um, you know, understand what they need. So, um, you know, because, you know, birds that are in Mexico need areas in Canada or the right. United States, and like, and it's all, it's all connected, um, which I think is like one of the most interesting things that I've learned about migration is that it's not very linear. Like everyone's like, oh, they go north to south. And it's like birds are impacted by floods or fires or, you know, all sorts of events that kind of, you know, they go, um, they reroute. So so like they end up where they need to, but it's not just like a straight shot. So like the more you understand, like the areas that these guys are using, you can say, oh, we need to protect this and we need to protect this. Um, you know, like an area that we might not have thought was important, um, could actually be like critical for, you know, some of these, these birds, um, and not just, and not just waterfowl. Um, it is, if I find an exact number, but it is astonishing how many different species at some point in their life need a wetland. And it's not just Mm -hmm. like, not just like your waterfowl frogs and, you know, those critters, like warblers need wetlands. Um, mammals need wetlands. At at some Mm -hmm. stage in their development, they need um, Mm -hmm. these things. So, so it's, yeah, so the waterfowl management plan impacts a lot of different species. Um, There are some smaller, I don't want to say smaller, grassroots organizations, but like Ducks Unlimited is a big one. They do um, land acquisition. Um, Another big one, um, and we can talk about more as well, is, uh, it was the Pittman-Robertson Act, and now it's known as the Federal Aid in Wildlife Restoration. Um, and that's not just wetlands, I should say. Um, like, that's, that's money that goes specifically to fund different projects, um, and restoration for a, a variety of habitats, but it ends up being a lot of, a lot of wetland stuff. Um, so, yeah, so there are efforts in place, and especially, like, organizations like the Audubon Society, uh, the Nature Conservancy, Um, is another really big one, and they've Mm -hmm. um, funded and, like, done a lot of research projects that I've worked on or with, um, and they, you know, acquire land and, you know, and I don't say make it right, but, like, you know, do, like, a very intense restoration project. Right. Um, One of the big ones I worked on, which is a pretty cool success story, um, is in central Illinois. I worked on the Emiquan Preserve, um, and it's owned by the Nature Conservancy and in the 50s it was a huge it's a huge area um was farmland and so uh the owner farmed it for many many years and then donated it um and they were like okay like what are we going to do with this barren field so they disked it and I, I don't know like i should know more about plants but i don't um but like the it, it's magic i don't know how like i know it's science but like it's also magic that right. like the seed bank is so prolific. Like you just disc it and flood it and like let the plants do their thing. And, you know, seeing it now, like I never would have guessed that it was a farmland. Like just all wow. the plants, like they don't have to plant anything. It's just, okay, like let's bring all the stuff that's underneath up to the surface and give it what it needs. And it's like, you've got amazing cattail. Uh, that's within so a few cool. Years. You've got, like great, um, lotus is like another lily pad. You've got some... Um, some pond weeds, like, great habitat for fish, Um, and then, you know, the wildlife, like, come here, like, they, in their migrations, you know, imagining, they're like, oh my god, this is like a great rest stop, and then they go, and they're like, oh my gosh, you know, we're gonna breed here, like, this is gonna be great, Um, so they do, like, they'll, they'll find these areas and and move them as they're moving, Um, so it's, it, it is sad, like, when these, like, people lose these areas, or people, when wildlife lose these areas, because they do get displaced, and it's like, okay, right. well, where are they going to go? Like, are they not going to breed this year? Are they going to have to, you know, keep going further? Are they going to backtrack? Um, but then when these areas are, like, you know, they do come to fruition, then it's like, oh my gosh, yeah. like, this is so great.
0: That um, is really cool.
1: So it's a it's a cool success story, um, yeah. and they continue, they're, you know, they're continuing to do research there. Um, but yeah, there's, there's definitely, like, and as more people are becoming aware of it, I feel like the tide is turning because people are being like, oh, right. shoot, like, we got, we really got to, like, step up our game. Um, yeah. But when they do, like, it really can make a huge difference.
0: So going with that of people are learning about st- stepping up their game here with wetland conservation is if you are going to recommend just one and, like, mm-hmm. literally just one thing, because I know the list can go on for forever. <laughs> Um, that the average person, so not the millionaire that has the money to throw at it in these wetland environments, how can just the average person help to protect waterfowl?
1: Okay. So I've been thinking about this. Oh, good. As long as, okay. So the only stipulation is, is that as long as the average person has $25. Okay. They can, they can buy a federal duck stamp and that is... It's not, you know, boots on the ground. I know, and I certainly, when you want to find out how you can help something, like, like you want to get in the dirt. You want to, like, you know, go into battle. Like, how can I do this? I'm going to hug this bird. Like, that's how I'm going to save the wetlands. But by buying a duck stamp, uh, that money goes directly to land acquisition, uh, education, um, land conservation, and research. I don't know if I said land conservation twice but it does, um, and restoration, and, you know, funding research projects to understand more, like, that is, like, direct, like, you might as well be giving money to the ducks, like, this is, you know, that's, like, it's right to the project, yeah, and the nice thing is, and everyone, likes wants to know that, like, yes, your money is going directly to that, but it's also, like, what do I get in return, um, the, the duck stamp is, like, a, guess it's it's highly highly coveted to have your art featured on the duck stamp like it is an incredible honor um they also in addition to the federal duck stamp there are state duck stamps as well for some states Mm -hmm. um which are like you know they call them like a wetland stamp or something else but like the federal duck stamp is like it's beautiful artwork so you're supporting these artists Mm -hmm. um it is also like you can use it as a pass to get into national parks um and national not national parks national wildlife refuges sorry um so, like, you get, like, a free ticket, kind of. Um, oh, that's cool. To, like, get in. You should still support your National Wildlife Refugees right. anyway. <laughs> but you can use that to get in. Um, the best thing is you don't have to be a duck hunter um, or a hunter in general to buy one. You know, as long as you love birds and love wetlands, it's, like, right. you know, it's it's not exclusive. And I that's, like, one thing. Because I didn't start buying, a, pardon me, a duck stamp until recently. Because I was like, oh, I'm not a duck hunter. It doesn't matter. but you know, and I haven't duck hunted in, like, three years, so, but I'm still, like, making, you know, able to make an impact. Yeah. Um, you know, you can go on the website. You can also go to the post office, which is super easy, like, while you're picking up stamps or doing anything else. Oh, you can. uh, mm -hmm. Post offices, uh, anywhere you can get, like, a fishing license, so, like, Walmart. Um,
0: I had no idea.
1: Yeah, so it's, like, pretty accessible, um, and $25, like, you know, um, in the grand scheme of things, not that much. Um, they make great gifts. <laughs> um, oh, there you go. Drink. Christmas
0: season rolls around, or uh, you're giving <laughs> presents for Earth Day. I don't know. That's there yeah.
1: You go. my, my God, like why don't people do Earth Day as like a Christmas? And it's just like you know, like if you give someone you a give plant for like, Earth, right? Yeah. Okay. No, this this is a good a happy go. happy but Earth. Okay, sorry.
0: <laughs> happy birthday! Yes, the happy bu- Earth Day. I love it let's make um, it a thing.
1: I'm a last minute gift giver. So there have definitely been a few Christmases where I was like, everyone's getting a duck stamp and a heartfelt well, card cool. about how they save ducks.
0: It's a great way to, you know, Christmas is a time of giving and sharing and mm-hmm. what better way to give than to give back to the earth that we literally live on. <laughs> and we <need> so, yes. <laughs> All right, uh, cool. So yeah, yeah
1: and that's great that that- that's the biggest thing. And you can of course like people want to volunteer you know like you can find your park commissions or your local audubon group but like hard and fast takes five minutes buy a duck stamp and you don't like i said you don't have to be a hunter it's not exclusive and that's one thing i wish more people knew because like i said i like i went my whole life being like oh i don't hunt ducks and it's like no but you can you can still make a difference and i think that's really powerful for a lot of people is like you know when they feel it feels like a losing battle that you're like, you Mm -hmm. know, we're losing all these wetlands. And it's like, what can I, one person do? Mm -hmm. You know, this is, this is a way for you to do that. And it, you know, you look at it, you have it on your desk or I keep mine in my truck. It's just like a reminder, like, you know, like I did that, you know, like everything, you know, um, you know, you do what you can. You're making a difference. Mm -hmm.
0: And I think going with what you said earlier too, of, you know, wetland conservation is the kind of thing that supporting ducks supports lots and lots Mm -hmm. of things so even if you're not like us and ducks are not like your highest priority (laughs) and you are super duper that frog person like that's okay because if you're supporting wetland environments you're supporting all of this if you're supporting waterfowl you're supporting the wetlands that those frogs Mm -hmm. live in and so for what it's Earth, each person who can support wetlands in this super cool, really, really easy, very accessible way of getting these duck stamps can be not only supporting, obviously, the ducks, but also all of these other animals and the plants and the habitats that are all really connected to everything, including to us. So with that, thank you so much for digging deeper into the natural world with the Art of Ecology and with Jess. Before we go, Jess, would you like to plug or give shout outs to anything?
1: Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, I would like to give a shout out to my Forbes family, uh, the one of the field stations that I worked at. Uh, they are an incredible group of researchers um, and me being here in Arkansas wouldn't be possible without them. So I'm always grateful for the opportunity um, and just like want to give them a shout out because they do some incredible work um, for wetlands conservation and education as well. I think I should also probably shout out to the Arkansas Game and Fish Commission for also funding this project um, and the biologists that I work with here and I can send you another blurb about that. Um, You know just different organizations that do a lot of research um, and do important research Um, Not Mm -hmm. just because I'm partial to Rails, but just in general. Um, But yeah, no, absolutely. I'll send you their websites. And if you guys want to check them out, um, you know, learn more about some of the other stuff that they've done. um, Yeah, no, I think that'd be awesome.
0: Well, definitely I will pop uh forbes family and the game commission down in the podcast description so whoever wants more information if they are local to arkansas go check it out that's awesome so if you enjoyed this week's episode you can support review and continue to follow along to explore more of the wonderful ecosystems that we are a part of For What It's Earth can be found on many podcast streaming platforms. For more tips and eco-inspiration, check out my blog at www.theartofecology.com. You can also find me on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube at The Art of Ecology. And with that, I will see you next time on For What It's Earth.